0: the CRO Spotlight Podcast, powered by the Growth Farm Production. Hi, I'm Warren Zena, founder and CEO of the CRO Collective, and welcome to the CRO Spotlight Podcast. This show is focused exclusively on the success of Chief Revenue Officers. Each week, we have an open, frank, and free-form conversation with top experts in the revenue space about the CRO role and its critical impact on B2B businesses. This podcast is the place to be for CROs, sales and marketing leaders who aspire to become CROs, and founders who are looking to appoint a CRO or want to support their CRO to succeed. Thanks for listening. Now let's go mix it up. So first off, I just want to say thanks for being here. My pleasure. So, you know, Tom and I have known each other now since 2014 or 15. It's crazy think that. Uh, I met Tom because I was a executive at Havas, and Tom was as well. He was like the head of strategy there. And uh, you know, I'll say this: when when you get a job at a big company, not everyone. Some people really get along with everybody. I don't, and I probably found that like I got along with like four or five people in every job I take. And Tom was someone just we connected right away, and I'm glad to say that we become friends and we talk a lot. And also, I'm very excited because Tom is such a great audience and network, and we talk a lot about really interesting things. So. Thanks for coming here, because I'm sure it'd be cool for people to listen to some of our conversations that are interesting. I, I am really
1: enjoying it. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. I hope it's as good as I expect it to be.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure it will be. So what are you up to these days? Like, What is it that you're working on right now? I know that you're speaking a lot, but we haven't really caught up in terms of how you've navigated since the last couple of years. So tell me.
1: The, the thing I'm looking to do more of and enjoy is actually helping companies transform. Um, there is so much that has been said about how companies need to change. Um, and so much of it is nonsense. Um, so much of it is looking for band-aids. So much of it is looking for a headline. Um, so I'm trying to work with often large companies, um, who are finding that life is fine, um, but they could be doing more. And often there are some hand raisers within those organizations that want to be proud of what they can make happen. Mm. Um, You know, a lot of these companies are not existentially screwed, you know, contrary to popular opinion. A lot of these companies are making more money than ever. But that doesn't mean that things can't be done better. Um, So it's often helping with things like culture change initiatives, often helping with building better systems, often um, better processes for innovation. But it's designed to be meaningful. You know, this is the sort of opposite to Web3, as a as a sort of headline, this is the opposite—a uh, kind of quick and simple patch. This is much more sort of existential change.
0: Okay, so a lot of things come up in that description. Things that I talk about a lot, and I'd say three of them come up. One is this sort of pervasive disease of short termism. Yes, which I think is—you probably would agree—is one of the barriers to innovation. People just don't want Absolutely. to take <laughs> long term decisions about anything. They want everything done next month, and you can't innovate if you're thinking that way. Um, and then the second thing is also just more understanding. Just a question is really more, what might be, and you maybe can answer this is an example of the kind of thing that you would do for a client right now that would move the needle forward. And the second part of that question is what types of clients are usually looking for that right now in today's environment?
1: There is a lot there. Um, And I'm going to start off perhaps talking too much um, about the broader context in which this is happening. Um, I think around about 2004 to 2010, there was enormous change in the world. And we had smartphones and we had cloud computing and we had uh, broadband and it seemed that everything was different. And you saw these huge companies, you know, sort of dominate the marketplace. Um, In the last 10 years, not that much has happened. Um, And no one really realizes that because it feels like there's this enormous tension in the air. And the tension is because the sort of platform on which businesses were built um, was was suddenly different, but most companies couldn't change. Most companies um, were too big. They were too successful. They didn't have to. But there's this enormous sort of tension and uncertainty and sort of paranoia that's out there. And it means that everyone is terrified. Um, like, uh, you know, we almost need to sort of have like an amnesty on this, but I think most people working for small, medium, and large companies and who work for themselves are terrified. They, they, they think that every new technology is an existential threat. They think that everything that they know is, is not deep enough and they need to know more about you know, stochastic learning or deep learning or machine learning. There's, there's a real sense of sort of fear out there and a sense that they're missing a trick. Um, so more than anything else, I like to go in and be reassuring um which is not a glamorous way to do this job and it, it doesn't get as many sort of headlines but it's to get companies to realize that many of the qualities that allowed them to succeed for a really long period of time um are still the case um and it's to get people to be more confident in saying no it's to get people to be more confident in um doing bigger things that are deeper less often but to do the things that actually really make a difference um, so a lot of what I do is much more about sort of simplification. Um, I probably can't really go into sort of specifics cause of sort of NDAs and stuff, but I'm working with a very large car company and probably more than any other industry in the entire world right now, the car industry is absolutely changing. Yep. Um, EVs have completely changed the economics. They've changed our relationship with vehicles. Um, the growth of Chinese manufacturers, um, could be as disruptive as Japanese or Korean manufacturers. Um, and therefore there's 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 this desire, I think, for some companies to act in denial of this and to sort of um, close their eyes and to not leave Detroit um, and to sort of feel that things are going to be okay. And then there's other people that are sort of going around saying, you know, everything's different, we're all screwed um i I try to work with people who want to have a more profound understanding of these changes and are prepared to latch on to one or two things that are really significant and then to use that to drive meaningful change um so i might mean having conversations about the way that they work with dealers um it might mean having conversations about the way that they design cars it might mean having um conversations about the way that they're structured Um, it's unfashionable to say it, but I'm aware that lots of companies are way too big. Um, we both worked in organizations that are probably overstaffed, Um, and you combine having too many people, um, with pervasive paranoia. Um, and you end up just with this culture of insanity where people are running around in all directions, um, political battles form communication lines, get very complicated, Um, so I, I try and be a sort of a provocative force that asks the sorts of questions that other people, um, don't ask because often it's not that profitable to, as a consultant to be asking these questions.
0: Yeah, I get it. And I can relate to everything you're saying. Most of the people that I'm dealing with are, I I don't know the right word. I call them growth stage companies. It's not a startup. You know, they've got money. Maybe they're north of 15, 20 million in revenues. They have a business. They have a customer base. They got, you know, sales organization and they're onto something and they know that they're going to probably double or triple their revenues in the next three or four years. And so they're making some smart and sometimes precarious decisions about how they're going to do that because, you know, there's a lot of trendiness that goes into those decisions, right? I get the same tech that everyone else got. I buy the same tech stack that everyone else got. I get the same CRM that everyone else got, you know, and I hire the people the same way everybody else did. Just everyone sort of does what everybody else does because it seems like that's what everybody... Really, I don't see much else thinking going into a lot of this, honestly. Um, And like you, right, I'm sort of kicking the tires on these decisions and I'm having them ask why. So, you know, in your case, understandably, you're looking at it from a technological perspective. Um, I'm looking at it also from an organizational perspective. Like just one example, which might be kind of similar to what you're doing is... I'll see companies just say, "Well, we're about to stand up our SDR group," and my question is, "Why? What drove that decision? Why did you? Why are you thinking about an SDR organization for?" You know, they're sometimes baffled by that question, like, "What do you mean? Like, why wouldn't I think about one?" Well, why are you? What's the business outcome? What drove it? And most of the time, it's because, well, that's just what you do. Really, that's it's not that complicated as an answer. It's just well, that's what you do. And so, similarly, you know, if I'm buying tech and I'm building a stack of technologies that are going to enable me, or maybe I already have one and now I have to rethink it. What are some of the things that you th- look at in terms of how a leader of an organization that's running a business that's at that very precarious growth stage needs to think a little bit more about this stuff so that when they, before they get too big and these decisions become even more complicated, that they can do now to maybe bring a different perspective on the way that they innovate earlier so that they become maybe I don't know try to be more culturally able to innovate later you know like what what what, what would you say to someone in that state let's say like,
1: I, I think um people need confidence um I've sat in a lot of rooms over the years, often with you in the same room at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's almost like a script that people read. Like, like There are times when I almost felt like I was in a sort of weird hidden camera show because people sort of reel off things. You know, People will talk about um, personalization at scale and people need a data-driven approach to refining insights and this program gleaned. Um, there's all these sort of words that people say and it almost becomes the this, this sort of dictionary of, of what we do. And I quite often think that no one really understands what we're saying um, and everyone's kind of afraid to put their hand up and go, wait a minute, you know, do we need like another third party data provider? You know, a cookies, you know, is the death of cookies really damaging to our business? Because um, I think a lot of people are going through the motions and there's, there's a sense that somehow um, we need to pretend to understand more than we do. I think people need the confidence to look into these things themselves, come up with their own opinions, um, know when to say no to something. And just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean it's a good idea. Yep. Um. There's a sort of weird thing in B2B, because for a long time it was sort of no one ever got fired for buying an IBM. Um, and that was a sort of classic B2B thing about sort of fear and people not really wanting to maximize something, uh, people wanting to just have the, the thing that's most defendable. And I think that that's still prevailing, but I think it's now sort of no one ever got fired... You know, for talking about adding AI mm-hmm. or oh, no one ever got fired for um outsourcing call centers to the Philippines. No one ever got fired for putting a chat bot on the front page of their website. No one ever got fired for buying too much data, and I think people are lured into the the sort of whimsical themes of every year, and I just wish that people could have the confidence to say this doesn't matter. We don't need this. Our system works. The problem is elsewhere. You know, what are the things that you're going to do that actually really make a difference to the short, medium, and long-term future of your business? And it's not taking every meeting. It's not flying to CES and, you know, watching the CEO of Samsung speak. It it might be to do completely different things. It might be to talk to your staff. It might be to talk to your customers. It might be to walk down a high street and look at people.
0: Now, you didn't go to CES, did you?
1: No. I mean, I, I do quite like it. I just, I haven't been for four years and I've realized I'm not missing much.
0: Right. I understand. It was the kind of place I figured either I could see why you would be there and why you wouldn't be there. So I guess I was right half the half the way. <laughs> um, but so I wanted to stick with that because what I'm seeing really, because you, everything you're saying, I, is, I so agree. I mean, I speak to these you people. You don't have
1: to. I mean, It's, you know it's, it's incredible me. like, how like, they... Like need. I like people saying, it's not like that, Tom. You know, you don't get it. Like we do need more data and stuff
0: it, like that. I, I, I don't... I don't think that, I think that a lot of these things are distractions. Uh, I do think that there's, like you said, there's without question, there's a script that I hear. I don't think there's anyone that will raise their hand and say, hey, you know, uh, I don't know what we're talking about. But I think wherever it comes from, and I've sort of, you probably landed on this one, you know, largely it's economics because the companies I'm talking to, they're at the stage where they've, not all of them, but most of them have gotten funding. Right. And when that happens, it changes things a lot. Yeah. Okay. So now, now they've got money from some entity and, you know, they don't always have the ability as they, as they would like to pick and choose the type of group that they're going to get money from. They get the money from where they get it many times because it's not easy to get money, particularly now. And so then they, they get that money and with that money comes a whole other consciousness that has all sorts of other agendas and reasons how that money is going to be invested and how it's going to be, you know, remunerated and utilized, et cetera. Um, and, you know, many times the boards that come with that money or the groups that come with that money have their own ideas and all their own thoughts on how they want that business to be run, the like technologies they like to use. Sometimes they even fund certain technologies that they like their companies to use. So they you got a whole other slew of problems that are both psychological. One is, boy, I better make these people happy. They just gave me money. And the other one is now I got a whole other bunch of people giving me more ideas that are just going to be more distracting. And um, I see the what I think these founders need to endeavor to do, and it's hard to do at this stage, is to sort of stick with your guns and sort of know like what it is that you're trying to accomplish and what's going to work and kind of remove distractions and be a bulwark to some of the cacophony of stuff, particularly if I just read the newspaper in the morning or newspaper, whatever you call it, look at me, I'm an old fart here. (laughs) If I look at the Axios or whatever it is, and I see the CES rundown of all the new AI technology come out, I mean, it's likely I'm probably gonna wanna pick one of them and, and test it. So, you know, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on how economics, aside from culture, plays a role in this, because this is the area where I'm seeing the most problems particularly for a chief revenue officer who's responsible for growing a business, probably to accelerate growth a lot faster than it really is natural because of all the decisions they have to make because of all the factors that they're up against that have nothing to do with the business many times.
1: It, it's a really hard thing. Um, you know, the the sort of dynamics of acquisition are really strange. Um, it is not unlike sort of human relationships really and, and sort of marriage where, you know in theory the person marries you because they love everything about you and they don't want you to change um and then all of a sudden things get different because you know <laughs> they have sort of more involvement in your life and and um you can't confidently say I, I shouldn't change anything because you liked me before um but there's absolutely a thing where from a distance these companies look fantastic and from a distance there's these investors look fantastic and they say the right things because it's the kind of um the dating stage of a relationship and then when they realize they're in the hall together you realize that actually they do want you to change and they didn't buy you for the reasons that they, they that you thought they did. Um, and their growth projections were sort of based on a different economic climate and money's more expensive now and, and everything's different. Um, I, I don't think I've got any real advice because I, I don't think it's a particularly easy thing to navigate, but I would say that these things are highly typical. Um, and that almost everything that's worth discussing and that will lead to a better place comes from very honest conversations it comes from admitting um mistakes it comes from um admitting our our sort of human characteristics that allow us to become emotional um it comes from complete clarity in 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 goal setting like it comes from um, good communication, and I think um, ultimately everyone wants the same thing. Like ultimately, no no large investment body buys a company because it thinks it's not that good, and huge changes need to happen. They buy it because they think the founders are good, and the product's good, and that the idea is good. Um, and then over time, things change. But I, I think sort of honest and clear and regular communication is is the start of of better solutions. As vague as that sounds,
0: right? It's true, and I see it's a, probably the biggest problem that companies have is good communications. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I I want to talk about something you and I talk about a lot, and you talk about a lot, and that is the customers. So customers are lost in these conversations. They're like the last thing people talk about. You know, I was saying to a, a client of mine that, I don't know, you probably get the same experience, maybe you haven't articulated it, I'm sure you've noticed it, that when you log into any of the dashboards that you use right now, probably use as much as I do, you open it up, let's say whatever, it's your you know, maybe it's your your productivity tool, or it's your payment platform, whatever it might be. Little thing I noticed is that the login button is microscopic, but the mm-hmm. sign up now button is huge. You know, which is an indicator of the interface is clearly showing the priorities of the organization. It really wants more customers. It doesn't really care all that much for the person who is already paying for the platform because if I have to hunt for the login button, then obviously I'm, I'm second fiddle here in this experience, right? And that's indicative of a lot of things. So I'm curious to know when you think about customers, because I know you talk, you write about this a lot. We talk about it a lot. What is going on in the world of customer service or customer development or customer growth? what can we do about this cuz with sdrs and all this outbound that's going on right now it seems like it's only getting worse and harder and i think more people are less good at what they do now than i've ever seen it's amazing how incompetent i'm seeing when i get on the phone with somebody it's like getting worse and worse and worse is this is this going to stop what what do you think's going on here
1: i find it so weird you know, like I find it, I find it amazing how good people are and how brilliant people's brains are. And then I see small teams of people that accomplish remarkable things and they create, create incredible sort of invent inventions and um, stuff that I can only dream of. And then you see the kind of really stupid mistakes they make um, with customer service. You you see the kind of, um, I think it's the sort of the worshiping of the spreadsheet. I think people sort of completely removed from reality and just looking at ratios and, um, Numbers on a spreadsheet. I think there's there's two different things to talk about here. One is um, the sort of design of the product itself. Um, I'm amazed at how few companies actively seek to include knowledge of their likely customer base within the design and the development stage. Um, you know, because we talked about CES, that's a good example. You know, if you took a, a normal person around CES and got them to sort of comment on what they they saw, I think they would be um, they'd be completely perplexed. They'd see all these things they don't need. They'd see all these things that don't make any, make any sense to them. And at the same time, they'd have very real concerns. You know, there'd be sort of washing machines that make too many noises. Uh, there'd be microf- microwaves that got too many buttons. There'd be sort of TVs with ugly remote controls. Um, it, it's it, it's something I think that's happened, particularly in this sort of tech-driven uh, paradigm of the last 10 years, where people have been so busy sort of metaphorically wearing white coats and sort of, discovering new elements and challenging material science um and writing new code that they've completely lost any interest whatsoever in what people actually want um and therefore the marketing department's job is to try and explain why this thing that people don't want actually sort of works for them um we, we see this a lot in software you know like um if you actually ask most companies to be honest about how different their product is um you know m- most products are pretty similar these days um yet there are incredible opportunities to make something that's different. So I think one is we miss sort of customer curiosity and customer knowledge within the the design and development phase. And then the next thing is customer service. Um, I think the fault here lays at management consultants. I think um, everyone is able to measure the costs precisely of some things. Um, You can measure the cost of having a call center. You can measure the cost of replying to emails. Um, but you, you're never really able to measure the the cost of a really unhappy customer. You're never really able to measure the cost of someone, um, who would have paid more and spread the word to their friends and didn't. Um, and therefore I think, um, I can't remember what it's called. There's some sort of principle to do with fences, I think it's like Bainridge's fence or something where uh, like fences exist because if people take them away, it takes them a long time to see why that fence was there. I think customer service has acted like this, where we basically removed it and removed it and removed it and we're waiting for something bad to happen. And we're not able to see it because we don't measure it. Um, for me, the advertising industry spends about a trillion dollars a year on, on stuff to talk to people. Um, and we hope that people notice, we hope that people care, we hope that people pay attention. And then the minute that people want to reply to that, uh, we think of it as a terrible thing and something to automate. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. If I'm on a car dealer's website and there's a chat bot there, that that's that's utterly preposterous i i potentially could be spending you know a hundred thousand dollars on a vehicle and you can't be bothered um to employ someone to listen to me um for me we need an entire reorientation of of the customer experience and customer service um world and we need to recognize that there is incredible value to people um who become um somewhat happy with our services there is incredible value Um, to people who um, stay with us for longer. Um, I I don't believe that that people are loyal. I don't believe that people are fans. I don't believe that people are advocates. I think we're out of our mind if we think that people think about our products that way. But to have people that might casually recommend us, to have people that quite like us, to have people who are likely to forgive us if we fuck up, um, there's enormous value to that. And there's all this modeling out there that shows that existing customers are far more... Um, lucrative than than recruiting new ones, and it's far more cost effective. But nobody seems to care.
0: Yeah, I, I get it, and I agree. And I think the issue seems to be, like you said, there's a uh, too much investment going on into trying to acquire customers, and not enough attention being put on to taking care of the ones that you have. But to your point too, even in the buying process, it's a miserable experience when I'm trying to purchase a product, particularly. I think the more complicated a product is, the harder it is to buy. Yes. Yeah. Which is incredible to me. I, mean, I know that you had recently indicated that you just bought a car. And so, you know, it's like, uh, that must be, it's a crazy decision. I got one too. I ended up getting, you know, I didn't get an EV. I got an F-150 <laughs> for the reasons that you and I discussed. I need to lug a lot of crap around now. And it's really fun to drive this thing on. It's just, it's incredible. And, you know, this is the thing I want to talk about. It. I, was, I was going to get the Lightning, which is the EV version of the Ford yeah. F-150, right? And uh, you know it's it's a big deal mainly because the car is so is so popular and there's more made than any other car in the United States right now. It's most most people buy it. So as a result, Ford really worked out a lot of the kinks in in their you know uh, combustion engine vehicle. It's great because it's been the tires literally been kicked on it for so long. It really works really well. Um, So I thought, how much of that are they going to bring to um, an electric car? So I did a lot of research on it. It was fascinating the things because you. people are amazing how much they post online about these things. You know, if someone's an advocate for these things, it's amazing how much information you can get. So I was doing all this research on the lightning and the pervasive attitude was, you know, in short, it's like, man, I really wanted to love this car. I really did. You know, and it was all because, and look, I think a lot of this is also because God bless Ford, you know, they're just going to figure this out over the next 10 or 15 years. They're going to work the kinks out, but the new, the recent new buyers are gonna be the ones that see it. But the problems are ones that you think they would've figured out. And mostly, you know what it was? It was in the interfaces. Mm -hmm. It was in how I just used the car, you know? The app that they gave me and how I, you know, the ergonomics and the technologies that go along with it, none of them worked, you know? And so I do think like, those are the most customer-facing parts of the vehicle when at the end of the day, and it's probably not their forte. I mean, they're not Apple, you know, or, or other companies that have done a lot of work in this area. But you'd think that they would have gotten people who were smart about that, particularly given the size of the company that they're in. So you could see that the actually, they actually fell short on it is an indicator to me of like where their focus is is more on engineering as opposed to on the customer inner experience, right? And they also said the buying experience is actually really bad too. It wasn't like a Tesla where you could just go to a place and just go pick one up. You know, it was still the same dealer model with all these trappings and too many different uh, you know, features and functions and levels and trim levels and things that just are just overwhelmingly ridiculous to know how to buy. Um So what was the experience in you buying this car? I assume you bought an EV, right?
1: Well, I mean, oddly I bought two cars at the same time. Um so uh One was a a used vehicle, which was every bit as um, challenging as you might expect. Uh I mean, I I think there's a huge difference between things which are excusable and things that are explainable. And I think um, I I can sort of explain, I I can understand why, you know, they pretend to go and ask the manager, you know, very slowly, you know, if they will increase the trading on your your vehicle, because they're trying to make you frustrated and, exhausted and prepared to sort of accept whatever it is that they're they're doing um but it's it's odd because for me a lot of what you experience is um people carrying on behaviors that worked before the internet existed i think you know for a long time people were not going to walk out of the office for a long time people did come in clueless for a long time um you know people would think that they were on the sort of back foot and that's just not the case. You know, I think a lot of people, especially people with means, you know, their sanity and their time is far more valuable than anything else. And they don't want something that's cheaper. They want something that's more sort of delightful. Um, the, the other one was, a was a lucid. Um, so I've sort of leased a, a, an EV um, to try and experience what the future of, mm. of automotive is. Um, and, it, you know, it, I've got a lot of things I could say about this and I'm trying to make sure that I'm saying the most interesting things. Um, one thing that amazes me that's somewhat related to what we were talking about before um is the sort of decline of buttons um because i don't i don't think there's anyone on the planet that likes a car that doesn't have buttons but yet almost all automakers have started making cars without many buttons at all and you can probably suggest that that's down to a degree of cost savings um but i refuse to believe that it's cheaper to have um a glove box that requires a, a touch touchscreen um, interface. Like you know, the, the plastic cannot be so expensive than a, that a little switch is, is that expensive, and and these things become quite significant to me because it, it kind of shows that. I don't think anyone has thought to ask people like, you know, there's this sort of whole thing about, oh, if I'd asked people what they wanted, you know, they'd have told me what they wanted a faster horse. That's not true at all. You know, people love talking about how bad their flight was. People love talking about how crappy it is in a hotel room that you can't figure out which light switch does which. And people will offer you stuff for free and they will love it. And I have absolutely no idea why we don't welcome that that input into the design process. Mm -hmm. And there would be an extraordinarily large amount of value created, both by making those people more happy because you're listening to them, but also by doing um, sort of free R&D on on what you make.
0: No doubt. And I'm a pain in the neck. I call software companies all the time and I tell (laughs) them what's wrong and what they should do. Yes. Um, I did this last week. I had an experience with a client. Uh, Well, that was a vendor who their sales process was clearly designed to incentivize their front end people to close a deal with a certain level of velocities that they would get the, the money in their pockets sooner than you know, later right you could tell they were trying to push me through a funnel you know i wasn't really listening to my timeline it was their timeline seemed to be germ- uh, leading this thing and it created all sorts of problems anyway long story short i called the ceo of the company we got on the phone and i said look you know uh, here's some things I'm noticing about your product and your offering, blah, blah, blah. My point I'm making is, you know, this person was obviously grateful that somebody with some means was calling them up and giving them some free feedback. Didn't look at me like a pain in the ass. Was taking furious notes, you know? But this is unusual. It is, unfortunately. I mean, I think the most of the time, like, who the hell are you, you crackpot? You know, leave me alone. I got better things I got to do. But this person was particularly eager to hear what I had to say. And then in fact, wanted to schedule a second call with me. I was going to, I got to charge them, you know. But, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. And I think that you're correct. I think there's a treasure trove of incredible insights out there for people that are running companies and they're ignored because they're not, there's no channel for them. And there's no process inside the organization for that insight to be utilized in in any way. So it sort of just becomes just noise or complaints, right? And so as a result, people are given a free this or a bonus that or a discount this to satisfy them as opposed to, yeah, you know, we heard you, we're going to do something about it. Um, You know, I'm, I, what I'm kind of curious to know in your view is, I mean, is this something that we think is just persistent? I mean, do you see that there's any way in, in the way that things are developing now? Maybe, I don't know, I say AI, because I hate using this word because it's (laughs) such an annoying thing, but I mean, are we at a point where, this data that we're getting from customers can be utilized better. Are you seeing any evidence of this or is it just going to get progressively worse? Cause I don't think it's getting any better right now. I don't see it getting better.
1: I think it all comes down to the, the love of the spreadsheet again. I mean, um, I, I personally think the, um, the whole kind of net promoter score I think was the, the sort of beginning of the end. Um, and It's so unbelievably stupid. I mean, can you imagine doing anything in life knowing that you have a chance to access someone's brain for about 15 seconds? Um, And in that access to someone's time and attention, you're going to ask them to just give you a number. I mean, and then, but you're going to take those numbers and sort of stick them in a spreadsheet and it's going to give you another number. And then every single sort of quarter, you're going to look at those numbers and then try and establish some sort of trend line or meaning from that. Um, you know, f- for me, those scores are entirely about giving out bonuses to suppliers. You know, if the toilet gets a 7.2, then we, you know, we, we take, um, 2% off your, you know, monthly, um, service contract. Mm-hmm. For me, it's got nothing to do with improving customer service. I, I have no idea why no single company has ever not experimented with the idea of just saying, we're not going to ask you to give us number. If there's anything we should know, please tell us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd get crazy people. There'd be people with nothing better to do who write books for you. And there would be people that say, you know, Sally in South Dakota was amazing, and you've got no idea how to get in touch with Sally. Um, and it's a bit sad. But there would be a lot of people that would say quite interesting things. Um, and I, I think somehow, if a company, let's say like a huge company had that, and they had a million responses. You know, let's say that the Walmart or BMW do that. And they've now got a million emails every day to pass through. That's quite a good problem, isn't it? I mean, Mm -hmm. it it is a problem. But um, in a parallel universe, we would give that a fancy sort of technological name and we'd call it sort of real-time sentiment analysis or something Mm -hmm. like that. Now, of course, we could use AI and we could get AI to sort of understand that and we could turn it into you know, all manner of dashboards that tell us, you know, how many words people are writing and how common the letter A is and are people speaking French these days still? Um, Or we could just have sort of fairly um, interested middle managers um, who just every day decided to read 10 of them um, and they pick them at random and then probably every day they'd, they'd sort of get quite a good sense of, of where the company is going. They'd, they'd probably be able to send on the most interesting ones to a department. They probably get one or two really important people who were complaining that actually should be phoned up. Um, somehow we're not able to do that. Like somehow we think of that as work and effort. Um, that, that makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, I think um, we need to think a lot more. We have this amazing technology. We can listen to anyone on the planet. We can speak to anyone for free on a video phone. Um, we can email things around the world. We can turn things into graphs. Um, we should love all of this stuff.
0: We should. Here's the thing that dovetails this is in purpose-based or cause-based marketing. You know, people love brands because what they stand for, right? That falls at the same thing in my view as the, uh, as the, um, uh, the scoring, you know, modems that you already alluded to before, which is this idea that I know you've talked about this a lot, but I think the, what we stand for is about one of the strangest um, things, because I don't think people care. I don't think people buy products because of what a company stands for. I don't think so. So, Again, I don't think it stops. I still think that more of this, I see a lot more of the sort of brand purpose or brand virtue signaling signaling stuff going on. Um, I see it. It's not abating. I think that every topic that comes up, there seems to be a brand that wants to align themselves with the next cause or the next thing that's going on. And it's amazing to me that no one's quite figured out that no one really cares I don't, if they can really tie any sales to this sort of thing. Um, so I know you have a lot of thoughts on this but I think it goes into the same thing you know it, it it goes into that similar sort of weird you know these these indulgences that seem have very little to do with building good products but seem to be catchy you know there's a company right now that sells this sort of thing what they do is that it's you get a score for your alignment with a certain cause and as a result of it then you get points for you know having a certain level of awareness about a certain you know, issue or something like that. It's crazy to me. It just seems so divergent away from the actual everyday use of a product. I couldn't imagine using toothpaste because they care about what's going on in the Middle East. Um, at the same time, though, I would say that there may be people that avoid buying certain products because they're alignment with things that they don't agree with. I think politics has also created a lot of divisiveness too. So it's, it's a weird dichotomy. I don't think people are going to gravitate necessarily towards something, but they may run away from something if they don't like their association with things. This is where that whole brand safety thing comes into play. So I, I see a lot of ways and a lot of this stuff is affecting the decisions that companies are making. And I'm, I know you have a lot of uh, thoughts on this. We've uh, dallied around this topic before.
1: Yeah, I've got a lot to say. Um, I mean, first of all, companies like that company that you talk about that assesses alignment you know, to a score... You know, these things exist because management consultants do an amazing job of putting out reports where they'll get enough data that they can prove any hypothesis to be correct. You know, if you wanted to, you could produce something that shows that companies that have more blue you know, a cause like the the, the blue leading companies and they're more likely to outperform the Russell 500 by 2.9% and everyone should change their logo to blue. Um, And no one would look at that and just go, that doesn't make any sense. You've just harvested the data in such a way to do that. Um, So these reports are completely meaningless, but that doesn't mean that people don't use them to sell stuff. the, the sort of notion of brand purpose, I think has become very confused. I think for half of the people, it means a sort of greater loftier goal, you know, so brand purpose should be that your shoe polish, you know, is supporting the, um, you know, giving back of land to Inuits. Um, it should be the, your, your sort of shampoo, you know, stands for, um, you know, a, a world with sort of cleaner oceans. Um, and I think, uh, the the reality is that the people don't have time to think that way. Like if we went shopping around Kroger and we had to sort of assess, you know, how aligned um, our tomato sauce was with Middle East politics, it would take quite a long time to go shopping and we'd probably just have a sort of mental breakdown and feel slightly lost halfway through. So, so um, you know, for some companies that are small, it, it makes sense because it gives you something to talk about. Um, so I, I don't think brand purpose has to be about making the world a better place, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Um, I do think that there's, that there's something in brand purpose giving a sense of logic and alignment to what you make. Um, but it's probably more important internally. Um, for many categories, it's probably not that easy to come up with something that's compelling and differentiating. And we tend to get lost in sort of wordsmithing. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you imagine, you know, every bank probably has a a sort of company vision, you know, which is to sort of make the world a better place, um, to sort of empower people with financial freedom. You know, every single sort of shampoo will probably be based around sort of enabling people to live their best lives, um, and sort of feel good inside. So so I, I can, I can see the merit, especially when it's internal and especially when it's used as a sort of product roadmap. But more often than not, these things become sort of um, taglines and commercials. Um, We are in this really weird period of time where actually, I I think people are afraid of how simple their jobs are. Um, I think people need to be busy. You know, a lot of marketers will change the logo more often than it needs to be done because they're bored of it. A lot of marketers think that somehow every time there's a breaking news story, they need to um, put their views out. Uh, Brands are not people, Uh, they don't have opinions. Um, they don't make decisions. Brands are sort of systems and memories and constructs that are in our mind. And again, if you're a tiny company, it, it's a great way to get noticed. You know, if I if I sort of ran um, a company that sold shoelaces that were made out of bamboo, it's probably good for me to tell the world that I'm pausing my spend on Twitter, you know, because Elon's just done something stupid because it, it might get me noticed. Um, it might be good for me to say something outrageous to get noticed. Um, but I think for most big brands, um, it, it's a complete distraction. It, it's not your job. No one needs you to do this. Um, focus on the things that matter, you know, make, make a product that's good, explain it in a way that's compelling. Um, keep, um, things sufficiently, uh, stable and consistent that over a long period of time, people understand what you're about.
0: Yeah, it would be too easy. Wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I think I, I do think a lot of the reasons why these a lot of people do this sort of thing is because they sort of can't really tie any real value to what they're selling, so they want to tie it to something that they perceive as being valuable that'll increase its value in the marketplace or perceived anyway. I do. I think it's a it's yeah. a lack of a, a ability to just be able to speak, and it could be in some instances like the, your product just may not be that exciting to begin with. I mean, there's some products that really aren't that interesting; they're just kind of utilitarian. You know, it's like a doorknob or something like that.
1: That's definitely true. I mean, there's a whole other thing. I think, um, you know, people don't have religion in their lives anymore, so they kind of, they've lost a bit of meaning and purpose. Yep. People somehow sort of expect their job to give them meaning, you know, so, you know, rather well, than going does, on... for some
0: of people, of- it does, it depends what you do, but you're right. It's a very few yeah. segment of the population that have the benefit of that sort of thing where their their religion and their job is just very well aligned. Most people are making a living. Um, I think, look, you're doing something that matters to you, right? I mean, there's a lot of things you can be doing. You, you've, you've been able to carve out uh, a, a really unique space for yourself. And so, you know, I. it sounds like you, you give a crap about what you're doing, you know? Um, and I understand you're making some cash doing it, which is great. You know, if you can do both, then God bless, right? I think
1: there's, Um. I don't like giving advice that maybe this comes close to that, but I think that there's an enormous amount to be said, um, not for doing something that's changing the world, but doing something that you feel a little bit proud about. Sure. You know, it's, it's quite nice to have a sort of day where you sort of feel a little bit you know, a little bit sort of ged up because you made something happen that you thought was a little
0: bit. No question, know. I feel that way. I do. Yeah, I there's think a lot, lot of it is also to- because it's your own thing. Right? I mean, if you make your own thing, there's a certain thing that comes with having your own thing. Yeah. You know, when you work for somebody else, there's a distance between you and that product that you can't. I mean, it's really hard to get people to care as much as you do about what you're built. And yes. I think that's not part of what we're seeing too. Is there's a lot of apathy in the world? People don't care about what they're doing a lot. They're just doing their jobs.
1: Yes. I mean, it's also exhausting as well, because when you care and things go well, it's an amazing time. And when you care and things go badly, it's sort of crushing.
0: I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. So, you know, it kind of goes to another point that I want to bring up that you bring up a lot, which is a really interesting topic. I think it's coming to a head, and that is around remote work. So, you know, I have a lot of people I work with right now whom are now rehiring or they just let go a lot of people and now they're in the point of building up their teams again. And the question comes up of is, do I want to bring people back to an office? Do I have I just totally moved on to the fact that I now know I can get people anywhere? What's the right model? Is it does it really work to have people working remotely? And, you know. What are the effects of this? And is it it peer to stay? And if so, you know, what does it mean for, I mean, we actually met with people here in Mexico yesterday whom haven't worked in the same country in like five years. They just travel all over the place and they do their work from wherever they go. And I know that's a unique thing, but there's more of this now. And there are countries who are actually opening themselves up to people who fall into that category and they're, they're creating environments for them economically for them to come and bring their work there where do you think we are with this remote work thing?
1: Um, Again, it's a topic I've got a lot to say on. Um, One, we need to recognize we're in the early stages of this. Um, We we have no idea what the sort of longer-term impacts of of this will be, and it's very, it's it's far too early to sort of declare that something is working or not working. Um, Two, we need to be very aware of how different people are and how different industries are and how different jobs are. Um, the sort of online discourse is sort of dominated by people that write software or they write sort of brand reports and they love the fact that they get to be in sort of, um, you know, Machu Picchu and sort of do ayahuasca while writing some code or something. You know, a lot of people don't have jobs like that. A lot of people are architects. A lot of people, are um, working for a local government. A lot of people, uh, need to be next to the factory so they can go downstairs and see why the buzz has gone off. Um, And I think we need to be mindful of how different it is to people based on their own circumstances, where they are in their careers. Um, Generally speaking, I think it's important that people make a choice and people have freedom to decide. Um, At the same time, I recognize that a lot of people make very bad decisions. Um, I I, I think the working from home thing has made me realize that um, we default to being quite lazy, actually. Um, we, We default to an easy life and we default to things that Um, don't require as much effort. Um, And we don't work out our muscles. We don't work out our social muscles. We don't work out our our sort of physical muscles even. And I think a lot of people are kind of hiding a little bit. I think a lot of people are becoming more introverted. Um, And I think therefore we must not expect that people always make decisions that are in their own best interests. So I think generally speaking, companies... Um, should be more happy about forcing people back to the office. Um, this this sounds quite weird. Um, but um it, it's sort of extraordinary how far we've gone. I mean, can you imagine in sort of 2017 saying, um, you know, this is outrageous, my company wants me to go to the office three and a half days a week. You know, that, that would be flexible working. That would be a, a very future-forward um industry. Like we we did all sign contracts that said that we were gonna go to the office probably five days a week um so to return to that environment you know in order to do a job that you get paid to do and that you can leave whenever you want you know that's not some sort of um human rights um issue that's a a sort of commercial and personal decision um so i think everyone needs to sort of find their own way i think people need to be mature and recognize what's really good for them and what's a really good way to do their jobs and i think often when people are given that freedom, it slowly dawns on people a little bit like wearing a suit that actually is quite good for us. I don't like wearing a suit. Um, It's expensive. You have to get them dry clean. But whenever I wear one, I am am a little bit better at everything I do. Um, I am a little bit more proud. I am a little bit more um, empowered, but I don't want to do it. Um, I, I think what we realize is that when people are working remotely a lot, that companies are not having the difficult conversations they need to have. Um, a lot of the harder decisions, a lot of the harder discussions, a lot of the um, the the sort of multi-dimensional elements of nonverbal communication are missing. People slowly feel disconnected. People slowly feel like they don't belong. People don't care as much. Um, so I think it's really important that most companies and most roles have a way to make people feel part of something. People feel proud of something. People feel like there's significance to what they do. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think there's a hybrid that's, uh, awaiting us here because I, I agree that while I'm I'm enjoying the fact that I happen to fall and you as well fall into the category of uh, the type of work that allows me to work wherever I want and I benefited from it in many ways I also Absolutely. feel I know my personality you know I like people I like being around people I like working with people <laughs> not everybody you know but you know I like working with people. And, and so I find that it can be isolating. It can, I definitely can feel that my, my skills can get softened. I absolutely agree that there's a casualness that comes with it, that while it feels kind of cool, it also takes some of the, the sharp edges off of things. I completely occur with you that I, I feel better when I throw on some duds and if I'm not wearing them, I'm sort of like, i I'm, my brain is in kind of casual mode. And I do think that you're right. It's too early for us to know what the effects of that are going to be, but I don't think they're going to be good. I don't. Uh, more importantly, my concern is 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 as much about productivity and stuff as it is just about people. I don't think we're yeah. designed for this. I don't. You know, we're not. Yeah.
1: I, I worry a lot about this like, younger people. Yep. Um. And and also for the record, I mean, people never believe me when I say this, but I, I am quite introverted. Like I I love people in theory. But in reality, I'm quite awkward. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm quite you, shy. You and
0: I are both very much alike this way. I, i I'm totally agree with you. Yeah. Yes.
1: So, but this isn't. Um, these things often become sort of introverted, extroverted things. Where introverted people will jump on me on the internet for saying that I like going to the office. It's because it's good for me. Like, like the, for me, the office is the gym. Um, I don't, I don't want to do it. But if I do it a lot, I recognize that it's a very, very good thing for me. And we're very good at lying to ourselves about the degree to which we don't need
0: this. I agree. And I think it's also because, like you said, if I can get the same, well, not the same, but similar benefit from not having to do something I don't like, well, why the hell wouldn't my addictive nature like that? Right? But that's not what's best for me. I, I agree. I know that when I... Went into an office every day. It forced me to have to take on certain characteristics that I knew yes. ultimately were better for me that I just maybe didn't find comfortable, but they worked for me that I don't have to muscle up with anymore, you know, which is why I'm trying to have more meetings now, you know, if I can. But the truth is, it's hard because most of the people I meet with are like you and I were in completely different parts of the world, so we can't. And I think the, these video interfaces is cool. If it's cool, I'll be able to talk to you and I can look at you and you know, have a conversation. It is, it's fascinating and it's it's miraculous. But there is something different about, you know, if I were to just come to Miami, we just go get a cup of coffee and hang out together. It just just feels different. There's something three-dimensional about it that you can't deny. Um, But I think it's interesting because I'm seeing right now with the clients I have is they wrestle with this. Their attitude is, is one, is what should my um, policy be? Should I ask people to come to the office and how much? And if so, am I cutting off my uh, hiring pool because there's a lot of people who I really would love to have in my company that don't want to work in an office right now, and I really would like them to work with me, and they're willing to if they can stay in, you know, Jamaica, you know, and that's a tough call to make. You know, what's the better decision? Is it getting the right people in on their terms, or is it finding people that are willing to work on your terms? And I, I there's no answer to it, but it's a fascinating thing I see it, happening.
1: It's a fascinating thing. Um, I I do think there is one statement that people make, which I think is a bit of a myth. Um, There has been a lot of people that think that the very best talent in the world um, has so many options that they will always choose to work remotely. Um, And therefore, by asking people to come into an office pretty often, you're missing out on that talent. I, I think there are some domains where that might be true. You know, I can imagine the world's best sort of coders, for example. Um, But I actually think that the very, very, very best people I know across a number of different fields, they're not extroverted. They're not people that need their egos rubbed. They're not people that love free beer in the office on a Thursday. They are people that know themselves enough and know what's important to them about their sense of purpose that they recognize it's probably quite good for them to come into an office quite often. Again, how we define quite often is quite hard. You know, for me we're talking about sort of sixty-five to seventy-five percent of the time in the office. I think any more than that, it becomes a kind of um it becomes a punishment. But I, I, I think um there is a wonderful thing that happens when people get together. Um and and you know I have always enjoyed working in the places I've worked. I've always loved the fact that people are in sort of weird situations together. There's a sort of the the meeting room that's not booked and you get moved into a sort of a cupboard where nothing works. And then you have this sort of banter while someone gets the internet to work and you find out, you know, that the client's looking a bit unhappy because, you know, their daughter's having a bad time at school. Um, there's the, the sort of cramming in a taxi and having your elbow stuck up someone's sort of nostril, you know, that sort of breaks the ice before you present together. I think we sort of forget how important the things that don't imp, don't seem important are to camaraderie, to a sense of understanding, to a sense of empathy, to a sense of um, shared uh, vision. Um, I, I think we stripped out that very quickly and it's taking us a long time to realize what we're missing.
0: Yeah, I, I got it. I think you're right. And I think the other part that we haven't touched upon in that particular topic is also there's a much greater divide ideologically in, this, in the United States, particularly right now, maybe probably even Western world right now. And people don't want to be around each other as much. There's a lot of uh, the potential conflicts that happen in offices now based on a lot of identity-related stuff and DEI-related stuff that kind of makes it harder for people to be together because of all the kind of simmering op- opportunity for conflict that can go on just from small things. And so as a result, it strangely seems like at the same time that that became more proliferate. We also were then also given the freedom to not have to be together as much and it almost made it easier for us to retreat into our separate corners, not have to work that stuff out. And so I think that there's a weird thing that those two things happen. Maybe it's a coincidence, maybe not, but you know, I don't know the answer to that question. But I can tell you that, you know, the office environment, even if you're in one right now, is much more volatile than it used to be. I mean, I've been working in an office for the last, you know, what, 30 years or so. And it used to just be just like, everyone just came in and hung out and here. Differences for so what? Who cares? You know, if you like the Yankees and I like the Mets, it didn't matter. But, you know, today it's not, it's a big thing. And I think in a way, this sort of work from home thing is a way to temper some of that stuff that may happen because, you know, we're seeing a lot now of these things happening in the office. And I think that that's another whole other factor that goes into this. And in the way in which companies have to align themselves around cultural factors, technological factors, work from home factors, it's it's, it's really just an incredibly complicated thing to deal with. Um, do, you, do I get a DEI person? Do I hire an ESG person? Do I have to? And if I do, you know, how do I organize my people around this? And when I do have the meeting, how much of this do I have to take into account when I start to run my conversations with all of them? I mean, the amount of things that we have to deal with these days to run a business, it's, it's, it's insane. And all we want to do is just get down to work. And, you know, it's really hard to do. So anyway, I, I think these are all kind of things. We, you and I could probably get on here for about three more hours. But I want to ask you a couple of questions before we sign off here. Um, so I know you bought a, an EV recently, but I'm curious to know what are some technologies that you're using right now that you find really just really amazing that you're finding like or wow, this is something I haven't noticed before or saw before.
1: Um, so interestingly, I find pretty much everything about generative AI to be absolutely incredible, um, but not particularly helpful. Um, so if, if I'm answering your question quite specifically and, and accurately, I find AI and generative AI and LLMs um, totally remarkable. Um the question becomes, how do we sort of use them more? Um, and how do we sort of rethink the way that we work around them? Um, it, it, I mean, somewhat related, I, I'm using voice to text quite a lot. Um, I, I, it takes quite a lot of getting used to because you realize that you don't enunciate your words very clearly. Um, but you also realize that sort of words come out of your mouth in a different fashion to your fingers. You, you, you realize that you um, reply to emails in a very wordy way. Um, But I'm experimenting with how I can write more material that way by practicing more.
0: Um, Like with if my, if my ask, I mean, like like Siri or specific text to, to to. Um,
1: I mean, it's on my Mac, so I sort of press the function see, button twice, it. then okay. you get the little microphone. I have it. I use um, it. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Oddly,
1: oddly, it works a lot better on your phone than it is on your your Mac.
0: Yep, I agree. I find um, the same. Mm-hmm.
1: So that, that I'm finding that quite transformative. Um. I mean, I've said this for quite a few years, but I actually think that the technology that we've had for a really long time has still not been made the most of. Um, The mobile phone, um, the, you know, cache. Like, why is it that I'm sort of logged out of websites all the time? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Things like um, sort of APIs. You know, I I don't understand why my internet isn't all of these call-outs and sort of threaded experiences that mean I get to stay on one site Um, and have this sort of beautiful integrated experience. Um, so I, I sort of love the mundane things, you know, I I like it when you get an email saying, you know, you've ordered this product, um, and then the sort of tracking information will come through and then sort of show you where it is in real time. Just, Mm -hmm. just in that email, you sort of experience something like that. And it's wonderful. Um, you'll you know, be on a website for your airline and you'll cancel your ticket and it will say, this is how much money you're going to get back. Would you like to do it? Um, You know, like, like it's amazing how... Um, how low our expectations are in some areas that we find it absolutely remarkable that an airline can tell us how much money they're going to refund us if we cancel the ticket or that allows us to sort of move our, our our flight sort of with less than five button presses. Um, so I, I, in short, I really like the orchestration of existing technology around real friction points and around new things, which are somewhat delightful.
0: Mm Mm-hmm and uh what's a good book you read that you could suggest everyone else look at
1: um, <laughs> i I am terrible at reading books uh, in my entire life. I've read about three books, and you know technically one of them was probably mine um <laughs> I, I am a really big believer in sort of high density readership, and I find that quite often books are really what could have been sort of five eight hundred word articles um sort of spread over 75 at page, uh, 750 pages. Um, so I, I, I follow people. I find someone like Rory Sutherland fascinating. Mm-hmm. I like the work of Tom Peters. Um, there's a guy, um, called, I've completely forgotten his name. Um, who sort of writes interesting stuff about business transformation. Um, and I, for me, I think, um, there's a lot of work to be done about finding a, a media environment that works around you. Mm-hmm. And that often means following people, rather than um sort of publications
0: yeah i do the same i follow people yeah all right great well like as i expected this is cool we could have talked about a thousand more things but i know we ran out of time so thanks man i appreciate you being here and doing this with me um it's been a while i've been wanting you to be on for a while so thank you
1: my pleasure has been uh, it's been an absolute delight <laughs>